You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. We are about to talk about topics that most churches don't want to talk about. The elephant in the room. Good morning, everybody. Uh, If you didn't hear the first part of that video, he said... We are going to talk about some things that most people don't want to talk about, most churches don't want to talk about, and uh, the elephant in the room. So uh, today we are going there. We are talking about sex. And uh, so, yeah, I need the lights on so I can at least see who I'm talking to. Make sure all the preteens are out of here, because we're going to go PG-13 a little bit today. And uh, today's week two in a series, as you can see, we're calling Elephant in the Room. And uh, we're talking about big topics. These things are huge in our everyday lives, but you don't hear about them a lot in church. And uh, just to kind of, if you weren't here last week, a scripture that uh, Steve referenced. uh, Okay, wait. Let's go to my presentation there. Is that my presentation? There we go. That's the elephant in the room. And uh, so we're talking about these big issues. So uh, last week, uh, we, uh, Steve went political. And uh, he had a Hillary shirt on, and then he had a Trump shirt on. And, and the political discourse is very heated right now and not very positive. Uh, the conversation is not happy and healthy. But, you know, they, they looked like they were getting along back then. I just thought that was an interesting picture. But, uh, but, but Steve mentioned this scripture when it comes to these uh, big topics, these elephant-like topics. It's a great scripture in Colossians 4. It says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is uh, Paul writing to disciples there in the first century. Uh, and he says some things that are helpful when you talk about these big issues. Number one, he says, be wise. Uh, don't be foolish. It's foolish in other places, Paul says, to get involved in, in, in these arguments. And uh, arguments never really lead to anything healthy. Quarrels never really lead to anything healthy. Be wise. Is this a, a great time to talk about this? Or is it, is it a bad time? You know, just be wise. And when he talks about outsiders, it's those outside the church, your family members, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, uh, people who aren't yet in our fellowship, we'd love to see in our fellowship. But be wise in the way that you, in the conversations that you have. He says, make the most of every opportunity. It's through conversations that God really works. If you read in the first century uh, how the church was built, if you read the book of Acts, which is the story of the first century, the church was built through conversations, through interactions that disciples would have with other people. And then God would work through those conversations. So Everything, every conversation you have is an opportunity. So you've got to always kind of be making the most. Could this be an opportunity God can use me in this conversation? Uh, Let your conversation always be full of grace. I want to really highlight that part. You know, who did Jesus have the most issues with when he was here on the earth? Was it the the people who were into sin and and wealth and, uh, you know, just caught up in the world and, and they were the party crowd? Or was it the judgmental religious people? 
Who did Jesus have the biggest issue with? The judgmental religious people. He said they're hypocrites. You know, the harshest words Jesus ever said was for that crowd. Uh, he called them snakes. He called them a bunch of, you're a family of vipers, he said at one point. He said, you're whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, and the inside you're full of dead men's bones. You know, those are the kinds of things he said. To the sinners, he, he, he had a lot of grace. Now, it doesn't mean it's okay to just continue to live in sin, but there's a reason Jesus, the, the people felt comfortable with Jesus being with them. So we got to be like Jesus. We got to be full of grace. We got to not be judgmental. We got to not be pious. We got to not be kind of, uh, I'm better than you, you know, kind of person. We're all the same. It's not like, uh, it's not like crusty religious people are any less sinners than the party crowd. We're all sinners. We all need God's grace. So let your conversation be full of grace. Be willing even to hear another viewpoint, you know, with some of these uh, big conversations. Be willing to kind of go, what's life like from behind their eyes? What is, what, what's it like to be in that camp? I'm not in that camp, but I want to understand. I want to understand. So help me understand this. Help me understand that. You know, it's okay to be able, this is good for marriage even, husbands, you know. Just because you completely uh, spend a good chunk of time discussing your wife's viewpoint doesn't mean you're going along with it. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes we're so afraid. Oh, I don't want to hear. I got, let's just, and then, you know, she might have some great points and she's usually smarter than the guy anyways. <laughs> but, but it's, you know, let's go over there. Let's see that viewpoint and then let's come back to my viewpoint. But be, be willing to be full of grace, seasoned with salt, it says. Oh, I just exited my thing. Thank you. Full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Salt in the first century was known, nowadays you think of it as being uh, flavoring things, and of course it does, but the primary purpose for salt in the first century was a preservative. So a lot of times when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he means you, you are salvation for the earth. You are, are the means of, of, of continuing, you're the means of preservation. So it, here it represents truth, seasoned with salt. You know, don't have a conversation and you don't bring any truth into it. Uh, but be wise in the way you do it. Full of grace, seasoned with salt. Those little, those little questions. Jesus would ask those little questions that, whoa, it really brought it home to people. Really cut right to the heart. So seasoned with salt so you know how to answer everyone. Amen? So we got to navigate this stuff with humility, with grace, and with truth. So as all these topics we're talking about, we really want to approach in that way. So today, you know, we're talking about sex. We have this rotation of, uh, of speakers uh, who, who preach in our church. I love that we have several speakers you get to hear from. It's not any one pastor. It's kind of a number of different people because different, different ones of us connect with different people. And uh, so I'm the one that coordinates our sermon series. I'm the one that coordinates our topics. So I'll usually send out here are the topics we discuss. We have a retreat. And we plan what we're going to talk about. Here are the topics. You guys pick what you want to talk about and then so they you know sent it out to them and Steve wanted to talk about politics and Dustin wanted to talk about anger you know anyway nobody wanted to talk about this so I got this one <laughs> by default and uh, you know I realize why it's awkward because there can be a lot of baggage when it comes to this topic and uh, there can be a lot of hurt and so I want to you know I, I prayed God please help me to not hurt anybody, you know, help, help this to be productive. And I really pray that if you do have hurts in this department, that, that God will, that his spirit will really speak to you today. And, uh, you know, my heart is to be respectful. And, you know, I think that there, there can be a, a silliness to, that people have with this topic because of the baggage, you know. 
So I really want to try to, to talk about it respectfully. But, and we do talk about it in our church. It's usually in, in discipling. Uh, you know, marrieds talk about this topic with other marrieds. And, uh, you know, it's usually on that level. And I'll never forget, you know, I was in the church about, uh, I've been a disciple five years, became a Christian uh, my senior year of high school, right before my senior year, and uh, started dating my wife. We dated for three years. We were pure in our dating relationship, which was awesome. It was difficult, but it was awesome. And uh, I remember getting with my discipling partner, the campus minister, Tony, and we were going to talk about, we were talking through marriage counseling, but it was a couple days before the wedding, and he started talking about this stuff, and I was just like, and my face was kind of like white. And he was like, you look really funny. What's wrong? And I was like, I've never had anybody talk to me about this stuff before. And uh, I, can't, you know, I was just sort of like, I can't believe my discipler is talking to me about what you're talking to me about right now. And uh, because it was a whole new world for me, this topic of, of sex, you know, I'd been just like, I don't want to hear it. And, and, uh, but why are we talking about it today? Why are we going there today? Because a lot of us, maybe we don't want to talk about it. But here's the thing. We're surrounded by sexual content. We are surrounded by messages from the world. There, it's hard to find any TV show that doesn't have stuff. I mean, even my family and I, we're all watching Downton Abbey right now. So I got all the way through it. And, and I tried to get them to do it. Nobody would do it. And then finally, you know, somebody convinced them that, you know, my wife doesn't like sort of stuffy British shows where you can understand the accents and stuff like that. And that's kind of what it seems like, but it's a really good show. And uh, so, you know, as they're discovering things as they go along, I'm, you know, I'm trying not to reveal anything. It's a great show. But, but even that, that's a pretty clean show. Even that has stuff in it. It's, it's just so hard. You can't find hardly anything that doesn't have a lot of sexual content. And it's these messages that are not only contrary to the word of God and, and his plan, but they're really contradicted by social science. You know, like, like what you see in TV shows is sex is casual, uh, you, you know, multiple people, it, it's, it's not that big a deal. You can keep it separate from relationship. It can be just a, you know, a thing that you do. But social science shows us that is not true. So it, it's not only contradicted by the word of God, it's contradicted by science itself. And, and so if we don't talk about these topics, if we don't get out there, what is God's view of this? What, is, what, what, what does the Bible say about this topic? The vacuum is filled by the world. And so, it, you know, parents, if you don't talk to your kids about this stuff, and obviously it's age appropriate, but if you don't talk about this stuff, they're going to learn it from sources that are, are certainly not in view of Scripture and certainly not uh, in the world. So... There's a lot we could say about it, but, but you know, it, again, we're bombarded by it. I mean, you, even, even burger commercials, you know, you can't, Carl's Jr. burger commercial. I'm like, why am I having to turn my head from a burger commercial? It's ridiculous. So there's a lot we could talk about, but there's two myths we're going to talk about today. Just, just to, that's about all we could get to in, in the amount of time we have. So number one myth we're going to talk about is that God is anti-sex. You know, there's this myth that God wants to keep me from anything pleasurable. God wants to try to, you know, wants me to just suffer all the time. God wants me to, you know, be restricted. God wants all these boundaries. God has all these laws. He has all these rules. God is trying to keep something from me. That's even from the very beginning. The first story in the Bible, God's like, you can eat from any tree except one. This whole garden, you know, as far as you can see, just this one tree. 
And what Satan tries to get Adam and Eve to think is, oh, God is trying to keep you from becoming like him. He knows if you eat that one tree, you're going to be like him. He's trying to keep you down. He's trying to keep something from you. So how we view God is, is really important. And there's this myth that God is anti-pleasure. God is anti-sex. God wants to make things boring. God is prudish. And yet looking at this first story, uh, Genesis 1, you can go ahead and turn over there in your Bible uh, if you'd like to. I, I will have these on the screen as well. Genesis 1, 27. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So both men and women have been created in the image of God, the imago Dei. The, our soul is like God. He made us like himself in, in many different ways. And he gave men and women different roles. He made women, men and women different. And uh, we did a whole series on this called Beautiful Design. And we talked about God's design. We talked about men and what men are like and women and what women are like. We talked about homosexuality. We talked about a lot, you know, gender issues and things. So uh, if you're new to the fellowship or uh, you weren't around for that series, I'd encourage you to listen to that at some point if you're interested in that. It's uh, on our website, southbaychurch.us is our website, and you can get our lessons on there. You can also just go to, if you're an iTunes user, you can go to iTunes podcast and search for South Bay Church. You'll see there are two different ones, but the one of us has a little bitty picture of Paulette on there. So you go, oh, that's the, that's the right one. So, uh, so anyway, you can get those, you can look, listen to those sermons on beautiful design. We're not going to really talk about that. But then he says, men and women, he created them, and he says, this is what he says to them, be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the whole earth. You know, that is a lot of sex. <laughs> fill the whole earth. And, and so God, God is not anti-sex. In fact, he created it and he commanded it. He designed it. Uh, it was part of his creation. But he created it within the context of marriage. He created it within this committed relationship. Genesis 1 is kind of the big picture of creation. And then Genesis 2, it zooms in on the first couple. And, and this is what it says about them. It says he made uh, Adam and Eve and it wasn't good for them to be alone. He put them together. And uh, he says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So Adam and Eve, the, the, the plan, this is God's plan for marriage, that you leave your father and mother. You're setting off on a new, uh, a new life, a, a, a new home, a new, a new family you're establishing. You're no longer irresponsible you're you're leaving mom and dad and now you're ready you're ready for commitments and the this man and women woman come together and they become one flesh it's like the picture there two railroad tracks that then become one railroad track the two paths are now one it's a committed relationship jesus said what god's put together let no man separate god says divorce god hates divorce divorce is not right because god puts two together and now they're one it's one life it's a committed relationship that's the context for sex it's meant to be in a committed lifetime relationship and and, he, and and it says that they were naked and felt no shame we're going to talk a little bit more about that later but that's that's the original design for sex is no shame does is there no shame in worldly sex oh boy there's a lot of shame in the world's view of sex there's a whole lot of 
shame in the way that our world and our culture treats sex. In God's way, there's no shame. The whole person, uh, that you want all of that person, you're committed to all of that person. It's not like only part of that person. It's wholly committed. And, uh, and so it's a, it, I don't know who said this first. It's in Timothy Keller's uh, book about marriage. But he says uh, that sex is covenant cement. Sex is covenant cement. So there's this covenant made, and, and, and sex is, is meant to, to continue to uh, solidify and bond that covenant. Because the fact is you can't have sex without an emotional and spiritual connection. If you try to, you create big problems, which we'll, we'll talk about later. But, but th- this, this body-soul connection is beautiful. There's intimacy without shame. That's God's design. Now that's, you know, in our marriages today, even in the church, in our marriages, there might be shame, but that's usually because of past sin or current sin. But, but under God's plan, if you follow his way, it takes the shame away and it creates true intimacy uh, and, a, and a lifetime bond. You know, this is of God and this is created by God. And as a, as a married man, you know, I've been married for 23 years. Uh, I am so in love with my wife and so grateful for our relationship and it amazes me that this connection, this spiritual and physical bond can go deeper and deeper over 23 years of time. That's amazing. It's amazing that God could design something like sex that would get better and better with time. I don't, I don't really understand that, but there's a lot of engineering that went into it. <laughs> there's a lot of chemistry that went into it. God is an amazing designer. And I don't know if it continues to get better and better and better, but I look at people like Al and Gloria... Baird, who are in their 70s, I think they're late 70s, and they talk about sex like, wow, we're having a great time, <laughs> and it's even better and better, you know, and, and they are committed disciples of Jesus, and it's just gotten better and better. I, I, uh, there's a, another couple, Sam and Jerry Lang. I don't know how old Sam is, but I know he graduated from college in 1971, and that's the year I was born, so I know he's old, <laughs> and uh it's fine. I can call him old because I get called old a lot by my kids and the teens. Um, so, so Sam is old, but, but he wrote a book. Uh, he was doing a talk, and he talked about this book that he was writing. And uh, it's out now. It's, it's called uh, The Five Senses of Romantic Love, God's Plan for Exciting Sexual Intimacy in Marriage. Uh, the main topic is The Five Senses of Romantic Love. Uh, and uh, he said in this talk he was giving, he said, I wanted to call this book Hot Married Sex. <laughs> he said, but I was worried about, you know, Google searches and stuff like that, or people, people trying to be safe wouldn't be able to find the book. <laughs> so, uh, but this, this book goes through the Song of Songs, and I just want to give you a little bit of Song of Songs. Songs Song of Songs is in our Bible for a reason, and it's a really interesting book. It's a poet, poem, it's poetry. The setting of Song of Songs is a, uh, a Hebrew wedding, and it's uh, the way that the, the Hebrew kind of marriage uh, system would work is you were betrothed, like Joseph and Mary were betrothed. That was a bonding relationship. It, it, was, it, it was similar to marriage in that it, it's hard to break. You know how it says that Joseph was going to give Mary a certificate of divorce and send her away because she was found to be with child, and he knew it wasn't his? So... It calls it divorce because that was a bonding relationship when you were betrothed. You, you were going to be with this person. 
So then the groom gets his life together. Uh, he, he builds a house or he adds a house onto his father's house, but he builds some, some place that they're going to live. You know how Jesus said, I'm going in my father's house. There are many rooms. I will go there to prepare a place for you. That's wedding language. The groom goes and prepares a place. Then he comes back. Nobody knows when the groom is coming, you know, kind of the general time. And, and, but, but you don't know exactly when he's going to come. So that's those stories Jesus told about the, the ten virgins and their lamps being ready for the groom coming and all that. That's, that's how the wedding would work is the groom is going to come. We don't know exactly when he's going to show up. Uh, then when the groom shows up, to, then there becomes this big party and they have a wedding. And they, they go and they go to the place and then they go in there and they have sex while everyone is waiting outside. <laughs> and cheering them on. Woo! They're in there! It's, it's different. We don't do that nowadays. The most we, you know, the most we do is they have a real passionate kiss up there on stage. And we're like, yay! Yeah, I, I see Simon and Lindsay. They're back. They had a nice... They had a... <laughs> welcome back, guys. They had a nice passionate kiss on stage last week in their, in their wedding. It was awesome. So, so they go that, and then, then they, then they're, now they're married. The, the, the wedding has been consummated, the, the marriage has been consummated, and then there's a, a week long of feasting. So they don't go away on a honeymoon like we do. They hang out with their family, and everybody celebrates for a whole week. So when it says, like, Jesus was having uh, at the feet in Cana, he was at the wedding in Cana, he turned water into wine, that was one of these week long celebration feasts that they would do. So that's how the, the wedding kind of system worked for the Hebrews. So in Song of Songs is kind of walking through that, but in poetry. And so in chapter four, this is the wedding night. This is when they're together and they're being intimate for the first time. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's poetry and imagery, metaphorical, but he's, well, I'll just read it. So he says, it's the man talking to the woman. He says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. So he's using beautiful images from his time. You might not think of goats as being beautiful. So, so husbands, you might not want to try that one with your wife, you know, tonight. Hey, babe, your, your hair is like a flock of goats. Woo. Then he says, uh, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from their washing. You know, it's like, wow, you brushed your teeth. They're so white. They're like sheep that just had all the wool taken out. They're just beautiful. I like this part. Each one has its twin. Not one of them is alone. <laughs> you know, this is... This is 3,000 years ago before dental plans, right? So, wow, you have all your teeth. That's so awesome. Uh, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like halves of a pomegranate. Uh, so he's, and then he says your neck, I like this one, your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. Uh, on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Basically, he's saying, you've got a nice, sturdy, strong neck. Uh, but, he's, but he's working his way down. You know, he's starting with his eyes and then her mouth and then her, her neck. And then he gets to her breasts. I'll read this, but I'm not going to go farther. 
Uh, your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. I don't know what that means. Uh, I read a commentary that said, well, if fawns, fawns are little gazelles, if they're going to browse among the lilies, it's a really safe environment. So it's, it's talking about safety, and, and, and it's a tender environment. And, and as I mentioned, you know, he goes on down through the rest of the body, you know, in, in, the, in, the, song, in the poem there. It's, not, it's beautiful because it's poetry. But if you're married, you're like, oh, I know what he's talking about there. So uh, I'm not going to read it, like I said. But <laughs> what, what I get from this, though, is, is God, God, this is good. This is something beautiful to God. It's in the Bible this celebration of another person in marriage. And what I get from it is that godly sex is affirming. He, he's, just, this, this is, he's just verbally praising her from top down. They're, he's just praising her. And she praises him a lot in there as well. She, he, praises more, her, he praises her more than she praises him, which is interesting. Um, but, but, I, but to me, it goes, I need to be more affirming to my wife. I need to be more verbally affirming. I need to be more specific about, you know, maybe I'm not going to say your hair is like a flock of, of goats. But, but wow, you look really nice today, honey. Your, your hair looks great. Uh, I love that shirt. I, I, you know, just we, I need to be more verbally complimentary, more verbally expressive. And I would bet a lot of the husbands here probably need to be a little more like that. But it's te- sex in God's uh, plan is tender. It's about giving. It's not about getting. It's not about performing. It's not about how, how did I do. It's not about, uh, you know, I'm going to make, uh, you know, I'm going to do this thing to you. It's, it's I, I love you. I adore you. You're special. You're beautiful. You know, it's, it's celebration of this other person. It's a beautiful thing, it, the way that God designed it. Uh, you know, when you, when you read further, it talks a little bit uh, farther down about all night long. I'm going to, I'm going to go to this spot on your body all night long. You know, it's passionate. Godly sex is passionate and, and it takes work to keep the passion going. If you've been married a long time, it's like a fire. You don't just leave the fire. You got to keep putting logs on it. You got to keep stoking the fire. You got to keep the fire going in your marriage, but godly sex is designed to be passionate. There's another, uh, proverb, Proverbs 5, uh, 15, Proverbs 5, 15 through 20, if you just want to write that down, it talks about delighting in your spouse. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May her breast satisfy you always. May you be ever intoxicated by her love, captivated. It talks about being captivated by one another, intoxicated by one another. But may you ever be satisfied with the wife of your youth. So you journey through life together, but you're, you're still satisfied with one another. You grow old together. The, the, our marriage retreat coming up is, I want to grow old with you, from the uh, Adam Sandler song in The Wedding Singer. Uh, but it's this idea of, I want to I stick with you forever. I want to be together forever. That's God's design. It's holy. It's pure. It's to be honored. This uh, verse in Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. You know, marriage should be honored in our church. We need to build it up. It, it, you know, even if you're, if you're not married and you're never going to get married, that's fine. You can still honor marriage. Uh, Paul said it's, it's good to not be married. I'm not married, Paul said, and I think it's really good to not be married. There's nothing wrong with not being married, but, you, but, but Paul, Paul also honored marriage, and, and, and marriage should be honored. It's, it's, it's God's design. And uh, culture has tried to make this 
something that doesn't have strings attached. Our culture tries to make it without the commitment. It's just an act. You know, even the terminology that's used in our culture, I want to score. I want to get some. Uh, What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That is such a lie from Satan. It does not stay in Vegas. And so the, the, the second myth we're going to talk about is uh, myth number two. There's no real right or wrong with sex. You know, this, this myth says it's a personal choice. There's no real right and wrong. It's just what feels right to me. And yet that last verse we said, it said sexual immorality. Uh, God will judge that. The adulterer, God will judge. Why? Because th- those things hurt that, that his design. It, hurt, it hurts you. It hurts his plan. And so where this myth comes from is is trying to separate sex from commitment, trying to separate sex from love, trying to separate sex from emotional bonds brings problems. It brings hardship. And so, you, you know, you, what, you, what you're saying, okay, if you're, if you're having sex with someone you're not married to, you're saying, I want this part of you, but I don't want all of you. I want your body, but I don't want to be stuck with you. I want you to give me pleasure, but I don't want to have to care for you. I don't want to have to, I want to have other, I want to leave options. That's what it's saying. If you're sleeping with somebody that you're not committed to, you're saying, I just want this one part of you. And where it is in marriage, it's I want all of you, I'm committed to you, whole person, for the rest of our life. And so sex becomes uh, this, if, so if you're trying to do that again and again, you bring a lot of shame and so then to try to deal with the shame, you say, well, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter what you really do. And so our culture is constantly repeating this myth because everybody feels bad about the shame that's come in because of sexual intimacy and sexual stuff that's not in God's plan. Amen. And so we keep, repeat, we keep repeating this myth, hoping we'll believe it, uh, when it just it doesn't, it doesn't work. It's, it's, it, it, and so anyway, I'm going to read you a couple of other scriptures on this because sex becomes an idol. So... In a godly marriage, sex, what it is, is it's covenant cement. It bonds you together. You keep that covenant. But your covenant is first and foremost with God. And and you've committed to each other because of God. And and sex is part of that. If you don't have that and you have just sex, sex can easily become an idol where you're looking to that idol to bring you fulfillment. I love my wife, but my wife is not God. Uh. We, I get a lot of fulfillment out of our relationship, but I'm not looking to that relationship. I'm not looking to, to physical intimacy with my wife to, to keep me happy, to, to fill up the most deepest parts of myself. God fills those parts up. But if, if you don't have God and you try to fill that with sex, you get all kinds of issues. And remember when Jesus was talking with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and he says, go call your husband. And she says, oh, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, what you've said is quite true. You've had five husbands, and the man you're now living with, i.e. sleeping with, is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. She was looking for fulfillment, wasn't she? I mean, it's clear she's moving from man to man to man, trying to fill something up. And so there's no, it's no surprise that what he says is, what you really need is living water. What you really need is to quench this thirst that you're looking to other sources to quench. You're looking to sex to, to fill you when 
I'm designed to fill you. And if you really understood that, you would get it, that I am here, I'm, I'm here to bring you living water. I'm here to really fill you up. I'm here to quench your thirst. So the good news is you don't need sex to be happy. You don't need sex to be fulfilled. You don't need sex to have the best you you can possibly be. So singles, you don't have to have this. It's not a requirement to be happy. It's not a requirement to, to do awesome, uh, complete, satisfied, at peace. That's what make it, makes it work is it's not for that purpose. It's for the purpose of marriage, uh, but it's not idolatry. It's not in the place of God. Because the earliest, again, the earliest sin is apart from God, I can be like God. That's what Satan tried to tell them. And that's idolatry. It's putting other things before God. And there's, there's this connection between, in the scriptures, between sexual immorality and idolatry. I'm going to read one verse, but there's many others. And you could do a, a, a word search on this. If you even just word search idolatry, you'll see the connection with, with sexual immorality. But Ephesians 5 says there not, must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or impurity uh, among God's people. And he says, for of this you can be sure, verse 5. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Such a person is an idolater. What does that mean? If, if you are sexually immoral, you are trying to get fulfillment in something other than God that was designed. You're trying to fill the God-shaped hole with something else, and it's never going to work. If you're a greedy person, you're trying to fill that God-shaped hole with stuff and it's never going to work. So you're, you're an idolater if you're trying to look for what only God can fill in these things. So again, you have these, the, these alternatives, these contrasts. Godly sex, it's a lifetime of getting better and better with one person, but it takes work. Worldly sex is it's trying to separate it from commitment and what that happens is, is moral decline because it doesn't fill you. So, well, maybe someone else. Okay, well, maybe something different or maybe something more experimental. And there's a, there's a moral decline with worldly sex that doesn't happen in, in marital sex. You know what I mean? It, 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 but in worldly sex, there's this moral decline. It, it, there's a, it's easier... Uh, to get to, to greater experimentation, more risky behavior, because it doesn't bring satisfaction. There was a Time Magazine uh, article earlier this year. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it because well, the perspective of these men is not at all spiritual. These are worldly, worldly men, but they are, are, are on this huge campaign against pornography, and they're trying to get the word out to other millennials about pornography because here they are in their 20s and they cannot have sex with a regular person because of so much pornography in their lives. Because pornography is, and Mark's going to talk about pornography next week, it, it has no basis in reality. And so they, they have filled their brains with so much stuff that now they can't even have sex with a normal person. I mean, they're, they're not, I, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I don't want to be like God. I, I, I just want to be able to have sex with my girlfriend and I can't. Because, of so much, because pornography has messed them up so much. Why? Because there's this, there's this slide of moral decay. And, and, and you need more and you need different, you, you know, and it, and, it, and it really, it honestly messes with your brain. Uh, Romans 1.24 talks about this. It says, therefore God gave them over, talking about uh, just our society, uh, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. 
They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. You know, the, the, the rest of this passage talks about a progression of sexual sin. Uh, and, and again, it's because nothing satisfies. So, OK, I'm going to try something else or I'm going to try someone else. And, it, and you end up being the, with this degrading, it's degrading of your bodies. Uh, like I mentioned, it's, it's uh, I want your, your body, but I don't want all of you. And you end up being, you know, just, there's a separation of body and soul that God did not intend. And so your body is degraded. God made our bodies beautiful. We're going to have bodies in heaven. We, we, we're not going to just be these bodiless floating ghosts. You know, the Bible clearly teaches you will get a new body. God designed your body. Your body is pretty awesome. It's a, it's, a, it, it's a fallacy that there's just, there's soul and then there's body. No, that your body is of God. And, and God will give you a new one. This is just a tent, the Bible says. You're going to get, you know, a mansion. You're going to get a, a class A1 model. <laughs> but your body is good. And, uh, so, so, but, but, but there's this moral decline if you don't do it God's way. And I don't know about you, but I've seen a moral decline just in my lifetime, uh, just in what is accepted uh, on TV or on movies. Or, I mean, I've, se- I've seen just in my lifetime, I'm only 45 years old, and I've seen a drastic change and a uh, dramatic shift. Uh, there was an article in Time magazine called, This is What Americans Used to Consider Obscene. And uh, it it talks about this film. This film is from uh, 1894. So over 100 years ago, uh, 120 years ago, or whatever that is. Uh, And this this film was was one of the earliest films shot. And they used to have these parlors with a kinetoscope, kinetoscope, something like that, where you could go and watch films. And so this film was there. And so you'd go and you'd see this film. But it it caused a lot of, of hubbub. And uh, I just want to quote, quote what he said. It says, its star, Carmen Cita, was a Spanish vaudeville dancer. Essentially, viewers were shocked by the way she occasionally tugs at the bottom of her skirt and how the petticoats underneath are visible. Wheeler adds, her dress was also a little shorter than a dress was supposed to be, and it showed her ankles. According to some accounts... The Newark Evening News reported that a New Jersey kinetoscope parlor had to remove the footage and replace it with the boxing cats. See, cat videos were early, (laughs) early, even back then. They loved cat videos. 1894, (laughs) the boxing cats. After State Senator James A. Bradley complained, such ankle showing was inappropriate. So at the risk of offending someone, I'm going to show you this video here. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. It's almost over. Wow. Wow. Uh, you know, my reaction to that was, wow. You know, and, and so what, what I get from that is, I mean, that does not even compute at all. As, as I can't even get in the mindset of that being racy 
or, or thinking, oh my gosh, that's too much. We got to get, you know, and what just tells me that I have been saturated in this culture and, and we're part of this culture. I'm not saying we need to all go Victorian and, and, you know, everything has to be up to here and, you know, all the women have to be covered up to here. I'm not saying that we live in our culture. I'm just saying we have to be aware, aware of how much we can be flavored by the culture. And Christians have always been countercultural. Christians have always gone against the flood of depravity, as the Bible says it. That's all around them. And so our world today is so much like Corinth. In Corinth, uh, we're going to look at one more passage here in, in Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians 6, if you want to go ahead and turn over there, because we're going to spend a little bit of time there uh, on the second point of this myth. Uh, Corinth was a city in Greece. It was one of the main major cities of Greece. And when Rome overcame Greece, Rome completely obliterated Corinth at 400 some B.C. Uh, and so one of the Caesars, though, hundreds of years later, says, I want to rebuild Corinth. So he made it all brand new, brand new city. And Corinth became kind of the up and coming place. Young people would go there. Uh, it was a hip place to be. It was a cool place to be. It would be like today, you know, San Francisco or something like all the hipsters. We're going to go to San Francisco or you know, like young, cool millennials are going to this place. It's a happening place like Silicon Valley or something. That was Corinth. But it was, it was a very wicked city. There was a lot of depravity there, uh, a lot of uh, idol worship there. Sexual sin was involved in idol worship because we've always known there's a, a, a spiritual thing with sex. There's something spiritual about it. And so it was used in a lot of idol worship, a lot of false religion. And so in Corinth, they had this saying, uh, you know, it's this good young, young people, beautiful people, happening place there in Corinth. And they had this saying, everything's permissible for me, or I can do whatever I want. That was kind of the saying in the city of Corinth. It's kind of like Americans, you know, I'm free to do whatever I want. That's who I am, I'm an American. Live free or die, you know. I can do whatever I want. And uh, so Paul references that saying in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say. That's the saying in Corinth. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. So Paul is kind of, he's, he's referencing this saying in this kind of motto of Corinth, going, yeah, you can do whatever you want, but is it really good for you? And it's true in our country. You can do whatever you want. You can live however you want. You can have sex with whoever you want. You can live as a man. You can live as a woman. Uh, it's seeming like pretty soon you can use any bathroom you want. You know what I mean? You can do whatever you want. But is everything beneficial? Does this even help? I mean, there, there's the latest data about sexual, uh, uh, when, when people have a sex change, they don't call that anymore. What do they call it now? Gender reassignment. Yes, not sex change. When they have gender reassignment surgery, they're they are like five to ten times more likely to commit suicide. Like, it does not fill you up. You can, you can Google that or research that. But, but, but it's not beneficial. These things that we're trying, they don't, they don't benefit. Yeah, you can do whatever you want, but is it really going to benefit you? Why not listen to the God that designed you, that created you, and His way always works? Why be mastered by something, Paul says? Why be controlled by something? And so he, he goes on the following verses there in 1 Corinthians 6 to talk about a soul-body connection. He says, if you have sex with a prostitute, you are one with her in soul. You are, you're not, you're, you are, you, there's something spiritual going on. It's not just a, my body 
it's just a body thing. It doesn't mean anything. He says, no, this is something deep and spiritual. There's a mind-body-soul connection. Sex makes you one with that other person. And he quotes Genesis, that scripture that we read earlier. The two will become one flesh. So Paul says that's why sexual sin is, is bad because there's, there's, there's a, there is something about your soul. Your soul is affected by sexual sin. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Verse 18. Now listen to this. This is in the Bible. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Again, he's saying, yeah, you can do whatever you want, but not everything is beneficial. And here's the bottom line. When you sin sexually, you're only hurting yourself and you're hurting your own body. Uh, these other things don't have the attachment that sex does. And, and, and it's true. There, there is no shame like sexual shame. There, there's, you know, I've been a minister a long time. And when people talk about other sins, there's not as much the shame involved. You know, with, with shoplifting or with whatever, you know, partying. Or, but with sexual sin, I mean, I've seen men in their 40s cry like a baby about something that happened 20 years earlier. Because of the shame involved with this kind of sin. It stains our identity. Sexual sin stains our identity. We're created in the image of God, but lust and sexual sin reduces us just to an object. And, uh, you know, he, he, he says, uh, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? These are disciples who is in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You know, there, for, for the young people here today, I just want to say, you're making decisions now, you're making present decisions that will become your past. And, and they will dramatically impact your future self. So any young people here, just think about that. The, the decisions you're making today are huge. There are, again, people in their 40s or 50s that are still dealing with baggage from stuff from high school. So, so make, make present decisions that are going to be a gift to your future self. I am, you know, I, I messed up uh, in my life. I, I'm a sinner. I, I need grace just as much as any, anybody else. But God protected me from stuff that I'm just so thankful for today. In my marriage, in my family, I'm just, oh, God, thank you so much. I didn't go down that. Like, I had a path, and I could have gone this way, and I went that way. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much, God. Only by the grace of God. But God is not trying to keep something from you. God wants something for you. He wants to protect you. He wants to bless you. Sexual sin hurts your soul. And so he's, he wants what's, what's best for you. He, he wants to bless you. Um, and, and so you were bought at a price. Honor God with your body. Uh, don't, don't you want to bring him honor with your body? Now, here's the thing. I know a lot of you might be feeling like, oh, man, I'm, I'm so depressed now. Like, I've already wrecked my life. My soul is all tainted and ruined and, and messed up. Uh, there's no hope for me. You know, I'm single. I wanted to get married, but I see how I have all this damage, all this baggage is never going to work out. Uh, guys, there is so much hope. Uh, God is a God who created the universe. God makes us new creations. God can restore mind, body, and soul. And here's what Paul says a little bit earlier in the same passage. Uh, this is a picture of uh, one of our baptisms. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But he says, uh, do not be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor drunkards, nor men who have sex with other men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You're like, I thought you said not to be depressed. <laughs> I thought you were going to encourage me right now, and now you're discouraging me. Well, look what he says in verse 11. That is what some of you, what, were. I mean... The Corinthians church was filled with people who were idolaters, who were sexually immoral, who were adulterers, who were homosexuals, who were thieves, uh, who were greedy. That's who the church is full of. And in our day today, that is who the church is full of. So I'm going to go through each one of these. I'm going to have you raise your hand if this was you. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But he says, that is what some of you were. But here's the thing. He says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. Your your sins were cleansed away. You were sanctified. Sanctified means made holy. Through the blood of Jesus, you are holy. That's amazing when you look at descriptions of God and His holiness and His purity. It's not about you and what you've done it's about god and what he's done and he's made you holy he's made you sanctified you're justified justified is a is a accounting term and it means you know you had this huge debt you know think about you know maybe you have some credit card debt think about all that credit card debt if the credit card company said you know what don't worry about it (laughs) some of you have big huge student loans huge student loans what if they said you know what you're doing a great job at work. Forget the loan. You know, don't worry about it. That's what has happened. You've been justified. You had this huge debt, and God said, you know what? Don't worry about it. Jesus is going to pay that price for you. Uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of our God. And so, you know, we are a community of recovery. We are a community of people who, this is who we all were. And I love this picture. Vanessa Adams took this picture, and she said when she first saw it, she kind of got a tear in her eye because it was so cool that, that, you know, just these people are kind of taking notice. What's going on over there? What are they looking at? What are, what are they doing? You know, the guys, right after this, he wrecked. No, not really. <laughs> not really. But, but, you know, they're taking notice. And that's who we should be. Like, we bring, we bring notice because we're a bunch of sinners, but we found fulfillment. We found the living water. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. That's why it's so important to keep purity within the church. That's why it's so important to protect our brothers and sisters. Our, I love our singles ministry. I love the purity of our singles ministry. I love the, you know, how we value purity and we esteem purity and we, we look for that in each other. That's so awesome. I love that in our teen ministry that we value purity and what's right. And, you know, that's a beacon of light to a lost world that's so confused about this topic and this issue. Uh, we're going to close with taking up our weekly offering. And that might seem kind of like, oh, that's a knee-jerk. But the reason I wanted to do that is because the only thing that comes kind of as close to our hearts as sex is money. <laughs> and it's the same thing with money as it is with sex in that you can never give up something for God and regret it. You, you never give to God and regret it. And I want to close with this story. There was a story of a, an old, old story of a king and a beggar. This beggar uh, was out, uh, you know, begging for money. And he came in contact with the king, the king of the whole land. 
He's like, wow, now's my chance. I'm going to ask the king. So he asked the king, hey, can, it, can you help me out? Can you help out a poor beggar? But the king said, okay, first, I, wanna, I want you to give me something. He's like, oh, the beggar's like, I don't have anything. And the king held out a bowl to the beggar. And I know you have something. And so the beggar realized he had a little satchel with some rice grains in it. And so he took his satchel and he took out three pieces of rice and three little grains of rice and put it in the king's bowl. The king took the bowl and went back into his, you know, his uh, whatever, his entourage and, and he put into the bowl three equal-sized pieces of gold. And he gave it back to the beggar along with his rice. And the, for the rest of his life, the beggar thought, what if I had given him everything? What if I had given him all my grains of rice? Why did I only give him three grains of rice? And God, God asks us to trust him. So often, he, he, he waits and says, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with your body? What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do with your time? What are you going to do with your money? Will you be willing to give first to me and let me bless you? He always asks us to take that step of faith. You know, being willing as young people to go, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to save myself for marriage. I'm not going to go down that road. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to trust that his way works, even though I don't understand it, even though everyone else in my high school is a totally different zone than I. I'm going to trust God's way works. I'm going to live by faith. With your money going, you know, God says to give to him first. I have these bills, I have this, I have that. Well, I'm going to trust him. God says, see if I don't bless you. Test me in this. Give to me first and see if I don't come through for you. Uh, you can never give something to God and regret it. He will always bless us. And he fills us up. He gives us living water. So uh, let's close with a prayer for our offering. And then uh, we're going to watch a video during the offering about something coming up, International Day of Giving. Uh, we, we, we as a church support Hope Worldwide. So we're going to watch that. And then we'll have a couple announcements and we'll close. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for being able to look into your word today. Thank you for your perfect plan. And uh, Father, help us to trust you. I know you're asking each one of us to trust you. Uh, maybe we have a lot of sexual baggage and uh, a lot of hurt, a lot of shame, but you're asking us to trust you, to trust in your grace, to trust in the cross, to trust in forgiveness, to be able to forgive ourselves, to be able to, to really step out on faith and know that you uh, make us holy. You justify us completely. You sanctify us and uh, we can't have so much hope uh, because of Jesus and what he's done. Uh, Father, if we are young and if, if we are, you know, thinking about decisions we're making, God, help us to trust you in those decisions that we make. And uh, now as we contribu contribute, God, now as we give our offering, uh, I pray that we could uh, give it with this idea that we can never outgive you and that you always see every sacrifice done in your name. I know you see all those that give online. I gave it 12 last night <laughs> with their account. And uh, God, thank you that we can give to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.